to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors discuss major issues or read their reviews and creative writing. My name's Georgina Arnott, and I'm the Assistant Editor at ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version, or $60 for print plus online. This week, we're delighted to present Kevin Foster on the ABR podcast. Kevin's review of David McBride's memoir, The Nature of Honour, our lead feature in the January-February issue, certainly put the cat among the pigeons. There was a good deal of comment on social media, some of it educated, some not. We look forward to presenting some of the letters and comments in our next issue, along with Kevin Foster's response. Kevin has taught at Monash University since 1995. He is an Associate Professor in the School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics. He is the author of Don't Mention the War, The Australian Defence Force, the Media and the Afghan Conflict from 2013. His most recent book is Anti-Social Media, Conventional Militaries in the Digital Battle Space, published three years ago. Kevin has written for ABR often, always cogently and unambiguously. Here is Kevin Foster. The Nature of Honour by David McBride Sometimes, for the faithful, it doesn't do to look too closely into the life of your chosen idol. Saul of Tarsus had been an enthusiastic persecutor of Christians before his spiritual detour en route to Damascus. St. Camilla Stellelis, patron saint of nurses and the sick, to whom we owe the symbol of the Red Cross, spent his early life as a conman, a mercenary and a compulsive gambler. Little wonder he went far in the church. Where our secular martyrs are concerned, matters become still murkier. Mahatma Gandhi tested his chastity by sleeping naked with nubile young women and girls, one of whom was his grandniece. And as for Julian Assange... The latest celebrity martyr... David McBride, has been fated for handing over the documents that helped pave the way for an inquiry into the actions of Australian special forces in Afghanistan and the resulting revelations of killings and cover-ups detailed in the Brereton Report. Yet the popular account of him as a selfless man of conscience, a champion of transparency and thereby a de facto enemy of a defence establishment wedded to cover-ups and secrecy, could hardly be further from the truth. Indeed, as he tells it himself... It would be hard to conjure a more entitled, self-interested, establishment figure than McBride. The son of Sydney obstetrician William McBride, famed for alerting the medical establishment to the dangers of thalidomide, McBride enjoyed a privileged upbringing and education. Sent to board at Tudor House in the Southern Highlands at the age of six, he later moved on to the King's School in Parramatta, where, bedazzled by tales of knights errant, and the Dulcet decorum-est spirit of the old boys, he dreamed of duty and service, and was an earnest, if indifferent, scholar. He played rugby, in a team captained by one Tony Abbott, and read law at Sydney University, mostly in that order. On graduation, his academic shortcomings were no bar to the glittering prizes, as the old-school tie, a little networking, and a slice of luck opened doors closed to all but the outstanding. When he applied for the scholarship Kings offered old boys to study at either Oxford or Cambridge, he placed second. However, 
as the awardee could not take up the offer that year, McBride looked in. Even then, he only squeaked into a diploma course at Oriel College because his father knew the then principal, Sir Zelman Cowan. Despite the political and social turmoil in mid-1980s Britain, of which he was dimly conscious, McBride's Oxford was a brideshead fantasy of titled friends, Dickensian college porters, dress-ups and debauches. In between college balls, skiing trips to Interlaken, and a bare minimum of study, McBride, like Abbott, won a boxing blue, discovering in the process how much it hurts to get hit in the head, and how it can cause you to lose consciousness. Who would have thought? His exploits in the ring led to an invitation to join the university's most exclusive club, the Bullingdon. Distinguished by their dark navy blue tailcoats, its members were renowned for their drunken rampages, buller blinds, vandalism of restaurants and college rooms, and a tradition of on-the-spot payment for damage. Recently graced by Boris Johnson, when McBride joined, the club was chaired by another future British Prime Minister, David Cameron. It was not a blaze of light, but a glimpse of tight trousers and spurs that set McBride, ever a dedicated follower of fashion, on his true path. Having heaved himself and his tailcoats over a wall to gatecrash the Christchurch summer ball, McBride spotted three guardsmen in their distinctive uniforms, and in that moment, knew exactly where I wanted to be next. Who knew that the road to Damascus ran along Whitehall? After graduating from Oxford, just, and officer training at Sandhurst, just, McBride traded the social cachet of an Oxbridge degree and the connections that brought for a commission with the Royal Horse Guards, the second most senior regiment in the British Army and another elite establishment club. When not undertaking foot patrols in Northern Ireland, keeping a watchful eye over the Iron Curtain, or performing ceremonial duties at Buckingham Palace, McBride commanded a vehicle troop at Windsor and set his sights on playing representative polo at the mecca of the English game, Smith's Lawn. He didn't. When interviewing for Sandhurst, McBride affirmed that he wanted to join the army so that he could fight for democracy and the law, and that he could best contribute by being a leader. Noble stuff. But what becomes clear as his memoir unfolds is that, propelled by an unreflective ethic of unshakable entitlement, the principal object of his service is himself. He shamelessly invokes the language of religion to vindicate his self-interest, professing a strong belief in the God of my own understanding, who answered his prayers when the shit hit the fan. It appears that his Bible studies passed over Proverbs 3.5 and its wise counsel to trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. In the context of such idolatry, whatever McBride wants is good and right per se. Anything that stands between him and his desires is to be surmounted, evaded, or ignored. As a result, despite his responsibilities as a leader of men and an exemplar to others, he demonstrates an increasingly cavalier disregard for authority. The book is punctuated by small acts of defiance, where the arrogance of privilege is passed off as an expression of irrepressible personality or profound principle. You had to act for your conscience, whatever the orders were. Sometimes it was the rule-breakers who were happier with themselves than the prefects. On one occasion, he dismisses a Northern Irish transport official who refuses to let him sit a motorcycle licence test 
on an unregistered bike as nitpicky and a little lacking in gratitude, especially given that McBride and his troopers had been keeping his streets safe for the past months. Whenever his eye turns to new challenges, he rebels against the constraints that frustrate him. Preparing himself for SAS selection, the pointless routines of base life chafe, and he spends more time skiving off and skirting his duties. Likewise, when he realises that he will fail selection, he disregards the absolute discipline required of recruits, defiantly contravening the rules and daring the selectors to dismiss him. Characteristically, his interest in joining the Special Forces extended little further than ticking it off his been-there-done-that list and adding its coveted emblem to the tailcoat and spurs of his one-man wunderkammer, claiming that much as I desperately wanted the SAS badge, I didn't really want to take orders. Thank God he failed. Once he leaves the military, the threadbare camouflage of duty and service fall away, and McBride's self-centeredness comes into clear focus. Working as a security contractor for UNICEF soon after the genocide in Rwanda, he scorns the aid workers he protects, denouncing their careerism when they should have been helping the people of Rwanda. Yet despite making ritual obeisance to the horrors of the massacres, his own indifference toward the Rwandans is breathtaking. His driver, he recalls, was one of the few surviving Tutsi civilian men. His wife and family had been killed. He was called Gabriel, or Celestine, something biblical, as most of them were. Back in Australia, he joins the New South Wales Labour Party, but within months is recruited by his old university rugby coach, Peter King, Liberal MP for Wentworth, who makes him a more tempting offer. Justifying his crossing of the political floor, McBride proposes that, as a staffer, you were really just like a lawyer, arguing your client's case, and could just as easily work for one party as another. The concept of political loyalty, with its tribal attachments and antipathies, completely eludes him. Yet again, the ethic of self-interest provides moral absolution. When he joins the Australian Defence Force as a lawyer, he does two tours of Afghanistan in the latter days of the nation's commitment there, one with special forces, providing on-the-spot advice about the legal quandaries raised by kill-or-capture missions. He had no qualms about his role and was keen to be part of the direct targeting process killing key Taliban from a distance with drones and helicopters. Yet his enthusiasm for the cause soon wanes. Affronted by the disparity between the reality on the ground and the airbrushed optimism of the ADF's public statements about the progress of the war, he's enraged when senior leadership elaborate the rules of engagement which govern the circumstances in which soldiers can use their weapons. In his view... The finessing of these well-understood guidelines was an inexcusable exercise in moral window dressing that exposed the men on the front line to greater danger and compounded their legal peril. McBride believed that for senior commanders, it was all about appearances, getting promoted and moving on. The careers of their subordinates, forced to make split-second decisions about when to open fire, were blithely sacrificed on the altar of positive PR. When the chain of command ignored his complaints that the ADF was too readily pursuing too many cases against soldiers who'd pulled the trigger, McBride passed on the material that formed the basis of the Afghan files to journalists at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, reflecting that, at the end of the day, you have to answer to your own conscience, not just the ROE. It is a rich irony 
that his efforts to protect the trigger pullers from persecution led to the discovery of credible evidence that rogue elements among them had killed dozens of innocent civilians. That McBride then accepted the moral credit for these revelations, while earnestly playing the martyr at his own secular canonization, is entirely in keeping with a career dedicated to self-interest. McBride's memoir reminds us that the lives of the saints are full of awkward biographical details, unexpected revelations, and disappointing truths. To keep the faith, sometimes you have to gloss over the facts. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.